You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, meritorious merrymakers and merpeople. Welcome to Good Job Brain, your weekly quiz show and offbeat trivia podcast. This is episode 66. And of course, I'm your humble host, Karen, and we are your flavorful flank of fledglings flabbergasted by flannel flapjacks and flatulence. <laughs> I'm Colin. I'm Dana. And I'm Chris. Quick disclaimer for everybody today. Uh, I just ran a marathon this morning. <laughs> So I might sound a little loopy. She literally still has her number pinned to her shirt, her hat, everything. I didn't even change. Encrusted in dried sweat. Her number says, yay, Karen. Yeah, you get to customize your babe, and I put, yay, Karen. So I was running, everybody's like, yay, Karen. I was like, oh, I know, I'm so great. They should put that on everybody's. That's a good idea. It's very positive. It is. But there is a silver lining on my train ride here. I came up with a mnemonic uh, for the marathon. Mm. Do you guys know how many miles? is actually a full marathon. 26? 26 point something. 26.2524. Just one decimal uh, place. 26.2. <laughs> yes, 26.2. And do you guys know where it came from? Like, why is it such a random number? Is well, it the distance between two cities in Greece or something? Yes. Yeah, it is? That's yes. the story that I heard. Oh. Right? It was like after the battle, right? This is a legend. I don't know if someone actually really did do this, but it was a legend that passed on. There was actually a battle of Marathon, and it was between the Greeks and, and the Persians. And the Persians were defeated, mm. and so they sent one of the soldiers as a messenger. So so this dude also fought in the war, and then he got tasked with, you got to run to Athens and tell people that the Persians have been defeated. So after battling, probably covered in blood and sweat and, you know, tired, he ran 26.2 miles, didn't stop, probably in very uncomfortable sandals or something. And he busted in to Athens. Hey, we won victory. Now the marathon race is commemorating this event. Hmm. Just imagine if he had to record a podcast after all that. (laughs) No. (laughs) People don't know this, but he actually died like right after he got to Athens. Oh, really? He like collapsed. I think I've heard that. It was kind of sad. And they don't know if it's true or not. So the mnemonic I came up with for marathon equals 26.2 miles. The first time I ran a marathon, 26.2 miles is a lot. And it really puts your body in shock, even with all the training. People react differently when you're exercising so much. Um, so the first time I did it, I mistakenly ate a lot of breakfast before my run. Oh. And so by miles... That's what, that's what television has taught me to do. Yeah, like, carb you know. up. Right, yeah. You better carb. So I was like, oh, sure. I you know, Wheaties is part of, of this complete breakfast. And it's like, you <laughs> know, the bacon, bowl of Wheaties. You know? and, right, yeah, like <laughs> two eggs, bacon, milk, five cheeses of toast, yeah. milk, milk and, and orange juice. juice. <laughs> yeah. So I had a big breakfast and... I just didn't realize that after running around, you get jostled a lot, and I felt really sick. Mm. And so by mile six, I basically had to run to a, a like a cardboard trash can, and I just oh, threw no. up. I oh, blew no. chunks. Aww. After I recovered, my mouth still tasted like puke. Ew. And so later on, I puked again. <laughs> so oh, so I, I, I vomited twice uh, for my first marathon. And so here's my mnemonic after that lovely story. <laughs> oh. 26.2 miles is 
too sick, puke twice. So it kind of oh, well. sounds similar. It's going to work for you. Yes. Yeah. So if you're a Karen, this is a very well. Helpful. Now that you've heard my story <laughs> it's true. Of, it's about true. puking twice, then you'd be like, too sick, puke twice, twenty six point two. Wow. <laughs> and you finished the race after puking I, twice. I did. I uh, you gotta twenty six point two. Too sick, puked twice. Wow. <laughs> Enough of my marathon talk. Uh, let's jump into our first trivia segment. Pop quiz, hot shot. And I have a random Trivial Pursuit card here. And you guys have your barnyard buzzers? Yeah? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, let's get ready to answer some questions. Blue Wedge for Geography. What Alaska town elected Sarah Palin mayor? Oh. Chris. That is Wasilla, Alaska. Yes, Wasilla. Pink Wedge for Pop Culture. Who sang the hit duet, Islands in the Stream? I don't even know the song. I, uh, believe, I believe that was uh, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Correct. Oh, right, of course. Such a good song. Very good job. Yellow Wedge. In what war did the Tuskegee Airmen fight? Dana. World War Two. They were they're African American pilots. Yes. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Yeah. World War Two. All right. Purple Wedge. Now an art museum, the Musée d'Orsay in Paris was formerly <gasps> what kind of public building? Oh, I knew this. Man, it was a train station. Yes. Oh, cool. that's right. Green Wedge for science. What bird? Okay, this is a wrong. Uh oh. This oh, is, really? This is a, yes, right. trivial pursuit. Red flag. Shame on you. All right, let's whoa, guess what whoa, okay, all right. Okay, wow. guess what the wrong answer is. Okay, all right. Okay. What bird gives its name to a group of Spanish islands? <gasps> Everybody! The Canary. Canary. Oh. Which we've talked about in the show before. From that Aussies. is, that is false. It's right. canines. Yeah. Yes. Canary Islands were actually named after dogs. Yeah. I can't do, do they have any wiggle room? What's the wording? What gives its name or shares its name? Gives its name. Oh, yeah. So that's... Yeah. yeah. I yeah. could see them not fact-checking it, being obvious. Like, oh, obviously it's the bird. Oh, it's clearly can- Canaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so. a good object lesson, though, right? I mean, you know, we talk about uh, anticipate what they're asking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question. Orange Wedge. In what year did Kobe Bryant first lead the L.A. Lakers to a championship without the help of Shaquille O'Neal? Uh, first one without e- Shaquille you, Everybody O'Neal. else can guess. Oh. Dana? 2006. Incorrect. Uh, I think the first one without... Oh, oh, oh wow, all right. Sports! <laughs> you have the buzzing call in. Sorry. Uh, was it 2008? No. Mm. One year off, always oh, one year off. Yeah. 2009. That's right. That's says right. here that's right that nine, nine and ten like i know oh <laughs> it says here that o'neill played with the phoenix suns that season uh, so they weren't together right right all right good job brains good job kobe bad job card this week we've each researched bits and factoids and stories about mm, things in the world that are lonesome lonely <laughs> solo this is about people doing things alone whether they want to or not (laughs) i think i only know 
like six words out of that song. Oh, yeah. Don't wanna be. Yeah, yeah. Don't oh yeah, those wanna all be. by myself. Oh, don't anymore. Wanna be. Oh, anymore. Great. Seven words. Seven words. <laughs> so when we were uh, kicking around topic ideas for this episode, and we settled on all by myself. One of the first things that came to my mind was this thing I remember learning about in college: research into human isolation. You know, how does your mind and your body react to being isolated, not just from other people, but from light and sound and everything that we take as part of being part of culture? How does that affect you? And I remember really clearly learning about a man named Michel Cifre, and he was a French scientist. He was a geologist by training. He did a lot of the groundbreaking work on extended isolation. Oh, this is going to yeah. take a dark turn. It's not that dark, really. I mean, it is, was literally dark because he was underground for long stretches. So it was uh, literally groundbreaking. It was. <laughs> I was <laughs> waiting. <Yeah. laughs> I see what you did there, Dana. Uh, he was a geologist by training. And uh, in the 60s, you know, there were a couple things that really got him to thinking about isolation. And it was both the space race. How, how can people survive out alone oh, yeah. for long stretches? Yeah. You know, what is it going to do to you? Are they going to come back crazy or debilitated? The other thing I was going to say, you know, the space race, but also the idea of fallout shelter. So this oh, is yeah. like early 60s, a very Cold War mindset, you know, going in two different directions. Like, how could we survive if we had to for weeks or months or indefinite periods, tiny little rooms. Mm -hmm. So he decided, all right, I'm going to go study this myself. And so he wasn't kidding around. So uh, in 1962, he was uh, young. He was in his 20s. He, he went 375 feet down in a cave in the Alps. Is that really That's deep pretty down? far down. Okay. Okay. That's pretty far down. I mean, there was no, <laughs> na no natural light, no natural light, no natural sound. I mean, he was effectively totally cut off from the surface. And he was connected by electronic connections. So he had communication with the surface. And he didn't sort of just wing it and go off by himself. Like he had a support staff up top and he spent two months down there, two months. And the idea was just to kind of see how does he adapt? You know, what, like what sort of sleep cycle is he going to end up with? Is he going to go crazy? And he would check in with his team. I think it was very limited. He would let them know when he woke up. He would let them know when he was eating. Um, but for the rest of the time, he was effectively isolated and he had books and some records to sort of keep himself busy. And what's really interesting, among the other things, they, they learned a lot about muscle loss, but was your sense of time. Your sense of time gets really distorted. Oh, I bet. When they let him know, you know, like, hey, the experiment's almost over. Like he had grossly overestimated how long he had been down. Down there, they noticed that despite the lack of any clock or anything like that, he settled into about a 24, 25 hour day. Oh, wow. And 10 years later, he's still, still interested in this research. He went down for six months, Oof. six months by himself in a cave, uh, in Texas yeah. this time. And again, same thing. You this know, guy must be really curious. He is really curious and really motivated. And you know, one of the reasons, you know, he said in interviews, one of the reasons that he decided that he himself would be a good candidate is because he was a, uh, a spelunker and an underground explorer. So he didn't have a fear of the caves. He wasn't worried that he was going to get claustrophobic. He talks about that after one or two months down there, he's sort of teetering on the edge of madness at a couple yeah. points, having some weird semi-lucid states, but he kept it together and it was good that he had contact with people on the surface. So here's what's interesting. When he was in the longer session, he eventually settled on a 48-hour sleep cycle. Whoa. And yeah, 45 to 48-hour sleep cycle, just when he was sort of left to his own devices. Uh, like he'd be awake for 24 hours and sleep for 24 hours? Or? He could, yeah. Or, or you know, he might be up for 30 hours hours and sleep for 10 or 12, something huh. like that. Yeah, it was really weird. Then that got a lot of people thinking of like, well, maybe we can 
train people to sort of modify their sleep cycles for like long military deployments oh. or you know things like that in 1989 there was another woman uh, they got a volunteer this time they were interested in choosing a non-scientist <laughs> they paid her she's a volunteer are they just hanging out in total blackness I, with like nothing to do they like, have artificial are... lights that they're allowed oh. to turn on when they want okay. but the okay. idea is yeah and this, this there's sort of, no sunlight you set your own schedule right you eat when you're hungry you sleep when you're tired you wake up when you're wow. rested oh, what so do they do they would bring books. Okay. You know, when Sifre went down in the 70s, he had a record player. Actually, when his uh, record player broke and oh, died no. from the humidity, no. he, he, he just about lost it. I yeah, bet. I mean, he was really just, I mean, you can imagine, like, oh. this is your one grasp of something to keep you uh, grounded. Yeah. yeah, and entertained. So this volunteer, Stefania Fellini, she went down for four months. And she also, when they let her know the experiment was up, she's like, oh, I thought it, you know, had only been two months. I couldn't believe that four months had elapsed. Huh. You lose track of the weeks and the months. Mm-hmm. Even if you settle into a normal da- daily Day. cycle, her menstrual cycle stopped. <gasps> but she also settled into a 20, 25 hour sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. There sort of seems to be something that we're programmed for, uh, maybe not surprisingly, for around a 24, 25 hour sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just gives you a hint that even when you know you're connected to people on the surface, you can kind of lose touch with reality pretty easily when right. you're just by yourself. Karen and I are just back from the Electronic Entertainment Expo. Yes! The E3, the video game industry's big trade show down in Los Angeles. We got to see the future of video games, basically, because they they had the the new Xbox One and the PlayStation 4, the new game consoles that Mm -hmm. are going to be coming out. And, you know, what all the games for these consoles have in common is that... As video games are getting more and more complex, they are just being created by many more people. It takes many, many, many people to create just, you know, one, one of the title. huge blockbuster mm. games. So, so studio, to, to give yeah. an example, uh, Assassin's Creed 4, Black, Black Flag, Flag. Uh, a game that was being shown at E3 that's coming out later this year, was created in eight different game development studios all around the world. So Whoa. like if you're if you're wow. walking around in Assassin's Creed 4, that part of the gameplay was designed by people in one country then as soon as you board a ship and start sailing, that was designed by people in a completely different country. Um, Assassin's Creed 4 is being made by people in Montreal and Quebec in Canada, Kiev in Ukraine, Singapore, Bulgaria, France, and Romania. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Then just all those disparate parts, you know, are all kind of stitched together. And that's kind of what it takes to, like, make a huge video game right now. Now, this was not uh, always the case. Uh, and and <laughs> what I'm getting around to is that um, for the Atari 2600 and the very early video game consoles made in the 70s, it was, it was actually more typical to have games made by one person. Everything was done by one guy. The art... The music, the the programming, mm-hmm. you had to be capable in all of those things if you wanted to create games. And the people who created the best ones, not only could they do graphic design a little, but they could do music a little. And they could do really a lot of programming. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the environment. So the, the Atari 2600, piece of trivia here, was not the first gaming platform that used interchangeable cartridges that had programs on them. That was, it was called the, the Fairchild Channel F. But the Atari was very early. When, when Atari made the, the 2600 or the video computer system, the idea of a video game console, as we now expect it, because, you know, they're going to bring out the Xbox One, the PlayStation 4, and we all know what to expect. They're going to sell that same box for like five, six, maybe seven years and continue to produce bigger and better games for it. When the Atari was was in production in the mid-70s, 
what Atari kind of assumed was, oh, well, this is just sort of a, a sort of an upgrade to the, the what we're making already, the Pong, you know, systems that we're selling, which we sell for one holiday season, and then we replace them with a different Whoa. model, because all the games are built in, right? Mm. So you sell the box, you just place Pong, and then yeah. the next year you sell Super Pong. It's right. a weird concept to... Yeah. Because we're so used to, like, you have one machine, and it'll just last for a couple of years. Right, you're making an investment, you're going to build a library of games, those games are going to get bigger and better. Yeah. Um, so what Atari figured was, okay, well, because we're letting people do programmable cartridges, that will give us, like, two holiday seasons with this <laughs> machine before we have to replace it with another piece of hardware. Maybe three if, if it's really popular. As it turns out, that is not how it worked. They, they really kind of stumbled into this, like, massive business opportunity because people wanted to buy the Atari and then buy games for it and just keep buying games for it for years and years and years. And so by 1982, there was still a lot of money to be made five years later in selling Atari games. And one of the absolute best designers of Atari games is a guy named David Crane. You probably heard of games he wrote, like Pitfall, a uh, huge, huge game. David Crane was actually a designer at Atari. He worked at mm-hmm. Atari... And he and some of his fellow designers thought, you know, hey, what we're doing here for Atari is like writing books or making movies, and we should be credited the same way. But Atari's radical, policy, radical thinking. Yeah, Atari's policy was that you're just you're just somebody doing work. You know, we just put Whoa. the Atari name on the games. Yeah, yeah, and your name does not go on the box. That still happens places. Oh, sure, <laughs> for sure. Yep. Yeah. But David Crane and uh, some of his fellow designers they quit. And they formed a company called Activision, which was <laughs> the first ever third-party, you know, independent maker of video game console software. And even today, it is a huge force in the industry. It makes mm-hmm. Call of Duty, and it makes uh, well, Skylanders. Activision Blizzard. Yes, Activision Blizzard, because it merged and uh, makes World of Warcraft also. Starcraft, yeah. Never heard of it. <laughs> But at the time, they were super indie. They were, you know, four guys who had sort of gone their own way because they wanted to be credited. Now, what is really fascinating about the Atari 2600 is that the Atari 2600, as as I kind of alluded to earlier, was never meant, if you think of David Crane's pitfall with a guy running on the screen and swinging on vines over alligators and collecting treasures, the Atari 2600 was never meant to do any of those things. Oh. When they built the Atari 2600 in the, in the late 70s, there were like two kinds of video games. There was Pong mm-hmm. and there was Tank <laughs> with, with two tanks shooting at each other. Like oh, the Very Atari, similar. Yeah. And so what they actually designed the 2600 to do, like at a, you know, in the hardware, was the 2600, it could create five different objects on screen. It could create players, player one and player two. Mm-hmm. It could create missiles hmm. that were shot from the player one and two, <laughs> yes. and it could create a ball, huh. right? Okay. So player one and two were either paddles or tanks, and they could either shoot at each other, or there could be a ball bouncing between <laughs> them. That's it. And, and if you couldn't find a way to shoehorn your game into that model, you were just out of luck? Exactly. Yeah. There was just nothing There was nothing else. Technically, you weren't supposed to be able to do much else. But they didn't. They thought that was fine because they were just going to make a couple of games. Right. It was going to sell, in, it was gonna sell uh, in the holiday. A little upgrade for next holiday season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't sell any between January and October because nobody bought video games. Then people just bought them for Christmas. And then they just do it again. 
But no, actually, people decided to try to figure out new and interesting ways. And so if you were one of these, you know, lone wolf programmers who could really, really tweak the Atari 2600, you could design some crazy stuff. And other people would not necessarily be able to figure out how you did all of that, right? Without getting too, too technical, because this is kind of interesting. Almost every other video game system, the way it works is it draws the screen, the whole screen in its memory, and then it outputs that screen to your TV. And then screen after screen after screen overlaid on top of each other to create the image, you know, of motion. The Atari 2600 did it, like, pixel by pixel. And they did it this way to save money because it would have cost too much money to do screen, screen, screen. Uh-huh. They just drew the game. You know how your, your TV, the old TVs have a raster gun in them, right? It right. starts at the upper left-hand corner and it just draws, draws, draws. Really, like, really fast and then starts over again. Yeah. Did you ever try to take a, a a video camera and like point it at your TV back in the day? Oh, it has lines. And try to, yeah, it has all lines that run through it. Because it's out of sync with the raster gun that's drawing things, you're seeing the movement of the of yeah. the gun. Oh, yeah. That's also how like Duck Hunt for the Nintendo, that's like that that's how it knew where you were pointing at the TV with the light gun because oh. it knew where the duck was because it knew if it was drawing the duck with the raster gun and it was just sending a light signal to the gun. Your gun wasn't shooting the TV. And that's why it doesn't work now. You can't hook up Duck Hunt oh. for the Nintendo and use it on an LCD television because there's no raster gun in there. Yeah, that explains why my scores are terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That dog's Zero. always laughing yeah. at you. Yeah. <laughs> what they figured out, though, was because it was drawing the screen from top to bottom, if you, you could draw something at the top of the screen, and then when the raster gun moved down, you could move that image down below and draw it again. And if it were like every other game system, you'd see the thing moving from the top to the bottom oh, but because the atari traveling. yeah but the image stayed on your tv screen it was still there until the gun yeah. went back up to redraw that part of your screen that's how the vine works let me tell you about the vine the vine in pitfall when you're swinging that's using the quote-unquote ball image which is just supposed to be oh. a tiny little sprite so they just draw a ball and then another ball and then another ball and then another ball and the ball is gone once they redraw it as far as the atari is concerned that ball has moved but as far as your tv is concerned it stayed on it's screen. still there and you couldn't have like a couple people working on an atari game because you can't just build oh i'm going to build this portion of the game and you build that portion then we'll put it together because you had to time everything perfectly uh, so it had to be all in one person's head, Man. basically. There was, was really no other way to do it. It was an exploit. And it was. Almost every Atari game that you play, unless you're playing combat or, or Pong, <laughs> like almost every Atari game you play, they are hacking. They're, you're using an exploit wow. that the thing is not supposed to do. Again, so important that one person did this because these programs would be so impeccably organized and perfectly timed. I have an amazing new level of respect for John Madden with all the programming he must have done on John Madden's football. <laughs> early years that's wow all right let's take a quick break a word from our sponsor traffic jams tailgating pile-ups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right the biden administration's epa is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. 
Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. So, are you guys ready for the return of an old friend? Always. It's our old friend, Elvis. The electronic, lyrical, vocal interface system or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Elvis, of course, for the uninitiated, is our computer voice friend who loves to read the first lines of popular songs stripped of all their emotion and soul. He tries to to sing them. He does his best, but, you know, he has a very, very limited range. Tries so hard. 80s robot. 80s robot, Not even a good modern robot. This is trailing edge technology here. In uh, the spirit of today's show all by myself elvis uh, elvis and i have assembled a quiz uh where the theme is famous singers who were also at one time members of famous bands uh-huh. so they broke out they're all by themselves now yeah just to force that point home yes <laughs> wait so, how does it connect to the topic so i will play some tracks for you these will be elvis reading the opening lines of the song so uh, you guys tell me who the artist is and then you also need to tell me what band or group that artist was a part of. Okay. And these are all very famous people <laughs> who were members of very successful bands. All right. So these are their solo songs. That's right. These okay. will all be so two pieces of information. And if you want to show off and tell me the name of the song, you can. So artist okay. and the band that they were once part but of. But no extra points for that? Oh, sure. I'll give extra points. Oh, yeah. okay. what, do you, what do you turn oh, your points in for? Points. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm worried that you're like, these are I'm all famous artists and famous bands. Oh, no. Because so if we don't get it, we're, we're not well, good. Dumb. That's all right. I would say there's maybe only one band in here that's a little tricky, we'll but I, I have confidence Colin. in you yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll just yell at Elvis if you don't like it. Here okay. we go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we'll, we'll start off with one that's hopefully a little easy. Here we go. Talk to me. Tell me your name. You blow me off like it's all the same. You lit a fuse and now I'm taking away like a bomb. <laughs> oh. I think that was Karen. Yeah. I think it is Ricky Martin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She bangs. She bangs. Oh. And Ricky Martin was part of Menudo. Yes. Wow. One of Who, the now... one, of, one of the approximately seven hundred members of the band over the years. So we laugh about Ricky Martin, but that man can sing. He's currently on Broadway. Oh, and Chris saw him. I did. I actually saw him in Evita. Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. was in Evita. Evita. Yeah. Really? Yeah, Very cool. good. Well, good hmm. for him. All right, here we go. Big hit from the 80s. Love, I get so lost sometimes. Days pass, and this emptiness fills my heart. When I want to run away, I drive off in my car. (laughs) (laughs) So sad. It was uh, featured in a very famous scene from a very famous iconic movie. And play one more time. Love, I get so lost sometimes. Days pass, and this emptiness fills my heart. When I want to run away, 
I drive off in my car. Karen. All my instincts. Yeah. They return. Uh-huh. I've got um, His name <laughs> is in your... Peter Gabriel. Yes. In your eyes, Peter Gabriel. Correct. Who's in... Genesis. That's right. That's what right. Was, what was the, oh the movie was John Cusack, right? That was the eighties movie. Say anything. Say anything. Uh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh. Great. Uh, yes, and he so was uh, the original like lead singer of Genesis, as Dana said. All right, here we go. Next one. Another big hit. Up in the club, we just broke up. I'm doing my own <laughs> little thing. You decided to dip, but now you want to trip. Cause another brother noticed me. <laughs> Uh, Dana. It's Beyonce? Yes. Up in, or single ladies? Yes. <laughs> and I was about to say up in the club. <laughs> and it's, uh, Destiny's Child. Yes. She was in Destiny's Child. Yes. Up in the club. <laughs> Just in broke up. Club. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see him in, like, that weird off-shoulder leotard. I want to see like his Elvis. little robotic hand, like, turning back and forth. It looks like a little fork. Just, like, rotating. <laughs> like a Dalek. Yeah. yeah. Egg spitter. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a uh, big hit from the 90s. How many times do I have to try to tell you that I'm sorry for the things I've done? But when I start to try to tell you, that's when you have to tell me, hey, this kind of trouble's only just begun. I know, I know, I know, I know, you know it. I'm trying to get the song. Oh my god. Hey, Dana. It's it's Annie Lennox. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It is why. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. She's so much more soulful when she sings. (laughs) That's when you have to tell me. Hey. 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 All right, go back a couple decades here for this one. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhike her way across the USA. Pluck her eyebrows on the way. Shave her legs. And then he was a she. (laughs) (laughs) And then he was a she. It's very matter of fact. Anyone want to bite? Uh Uh-uh. I know you guys know it. Really? Because she's got legs. I'm just kidding. She knows how to... No. No. (laughs) But, like, I mean, those are really very specific lyrics. I think I would know the song. They're saying in a very laid-back style in the song, which may not be why you remember Mm. them. That is... (laughs) Take a walk on the wild side. Oh, okay. Anyone? That's right. By the great Lou Reed. Yes. A founding member of Velvet Underground. Well, that totally makes sense now, actually. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll close it out here with one. And now this song was covered by many people, but it is indisputably, I think, linked with one person in particular. And that's what I'm looking for. Busted flat in Baton Rouge, waiting for a train, and I was feeling near as faded as my jeans. Poppy thumbed a diesel down just before it rained. It rode us all the way to New Orleans. <laughs> Baton. Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Jeans and New, New Orleans. Orleans. <laughs> oh. So this is the signature song for a lady by the name of... Chris? Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin, correct. Oh. Whoa, me, she was me, in and a Bobby, band? me and Bobby McGee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so this is what this is probably the, the trickiest band? one of the batch. Headhunters, something. Kid and play. 
No. Is there going to be like Janis Joplin and the blank? Nope, no, it's not. It is somebody and the something, but it's not Janis Joplin. It's Big Brother and the Holding Company. Yes, that's oh. what it was. Yeah. yeah. Great trivia band there. Huh. Yes. Great brother. Big, Big brother. brother. Big brother. And the Holding Company. And the Holding yeah. Company. Big yeah. brother. And the whole so, like, Take a Piece of My Heart is actually by them. It's not a Janis Joplin oh, solo really? song. Oh. Yeah. Summertime also. Like, a lot of hits, you're that like, oh, those are Janis Joplin songs. Those that's are. a good psych-out pub trivia question. Mm. Yeah. If they play, I mean, music They say it's a band, and you're yeah. like, Janis Joplin and the Joplineers? Janis and the Joplins? The Joplineers. Take a Piece of My Heart is not... It's her and her band. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good job, guys. There we go. Wow, thanks, mister. (laughs) Gee, thanks. Thanks, Elvis. Thanks, Elvis. Let's keep this party rolling with <laughs> let's rolling keep, with my homies. I like mixing my metaphor, keeping the party rolling. <laughs> Wait, what is this supposed to be? I don't know. Keep the show rolling. <laughs> it just sounded wrong after I started the party rolling. All right, so I will give you the name of a, a band. And you tell me who became a solo performer from that band. Who, okay. who became right. maybe more famous? And it doesn't necessarily have to be the lead singer. It doesn't necessarily need oh. to be. Okay. All right. You ready? We're going to do it lightning rounds. Right. Okay, right. okay. Okay. Miami Sound Machine. Oh, everybody. <laughs> Gloria Estefan. Yeah. White Zombie. Colin. Rob Zombie. Yes. Wings. Uh, Paul McCartney? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Stone Ponies. Oh, that's uh, 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 no. Uh, oh, uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt. Linda, Linda Ronstadt. Oh man, yeah. I pulled that one out. Buffalo Springfield. Oh, that's uh, uh, Neil Young. Yes. How about N.W.A. Oh, Karen. Oh, which one? We go on and you on. Could, you could say more than one. Ice. Cube. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dre. Yep. Easy E. Oh, yeah. Okay. Wham. <laughs> Karen. George Michael. What is the name of the other guy? I still don't uh, know. Andrew Ridgely. Oh, yes. nice one. Yeah. Nice one. The Smiths. Colin. Morrissey. Morrissey. Yeah. How about them? Them. them. Uh-huh. Him? No. <laughs> I it was you. Van Morrison. Uh, yes. Oh, we had it in a music quiz. I had it in. Oh my god. How about <laughs> Hole? Oh, How about Hole? Karen. Corny Love. Yep. The Impressions. Oh, James Taylor or somebody. Curtis Mayfield. Oh. Curtis Mayfield. Wait, what's the band called again? The Impressions. The Impressions. Oh, so okay, so kind you of. You can like, see why oh, I would mix up James Taylor and Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, they're, 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 they're so similar so stylistically. Similar. <laughs> How about? The Sugar Cubes. Oh, York. Yes. York. The Supremes. <laughs> Chris. Diana Ross. Yes. Digital Underground. Karen. Humpty. Uh, Tupac Shakur. Yes. Tupac was in Digital Underground. No way. The Bay Area Band. Bay Area Band. No yeah. The Stooges. Oh, uh, Iggy Pop. Yes. 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 And lastly, Oingo Boingo. Karen. Danny Elfman. Yay, yes. Yay. It comes full Elfman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything's coming up Elfman. <laughs> awesome. That's that's like just to me like quintessential pub quiz fodder right there. Yeah, that's a good matching round. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. 
So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We're going to end this episode with a, a last alone or a lonely segment. And I'm going to talk about one of probably the most mind-boggling animal in my mind. When you think of lonely, solitary animals, what do you think of? What's the number one thing you think of? Uh, I don't know, like mm. wolf, like, like the lone wolf. Oh, sure. sure. Or like okay. a praying man- mantis because they eat the other one. <laughs> the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> None of these answers are the oh, most. <laughs> but- oh, you didn't tell us it was a leading question. <laughs> okay. well, then you need I- to specify. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the hermit crab. Oh, yeah. Hermit crab, very, you know, solitary animal. For those of you guys who don't know hermit crab is the little crab that has a like a like outer seashell that acts as their home right and they live in the seashell it's their little house i know how it looks in cartoons at least yeah yeah Yeah. until i researched this i never knew what a hermit crab looks like outside of its shell it looks (laughs) crazy so the first half that you see coming out of the shell looks like a crab like a like kind of like a crawdad you know very crab like Mm -hmm. so the back half of the body that's hidden in the shell is soft and that's why they need the shell to protect their their abdomen and their organs and it looks like the second half is like a cinema bun it's like a cinnabon it it spirals in because it like fills the shape of the shell yeah and it's it's a soft squishy bit and it looks crazy it's like half cinnabon half crab there are many many different types of hermit crabs they're the ones that are marine and they're ones that are live on land and researchers actually at the University of California, Berkeley, yay, go, bears. go Bears, go Bears, our school, they found out that the terrestrial hermit crabs do socialize, but they don't socialize for like drinks or to have fun or, <laughs> or to be like the terrestrial hermit crabs. They socialize with the purpose of trying to find a better shell or a <laughs> better house. <laughs> really? So it's kind of mean in a way. They socialize just to uh, just to upgrade their shell because they grow. Uh, I mean, they grow in the shell and sometimes they have to keep upgrading because their size gets larger <laughs> and they can't, they can't fully retract into the seashell. This is like Animal Crossing. <laughs> you say that. <laughs> you think you're joking. So there's this crazy phenomenon if a couple of land-based hermit crabs are hanging out, or especially if one hermit crab finds just an empty new shell that it's going to move onto, somehow they have hermit radar and all the other hermit crabs come and congregate like a conga line. <laughs> they do a little hermit crab conga line. They line up uh-huh. from the largest shell crab to the smallest and they would trade and upgrade wow. the shells oh one God. by one. So if it's one, not so orderly. Yes, it, it's amazing. If one crab finds a bigger shell, then the second biggest one gets in line and takes his shell, and the third one gets in line, takes his shell, and so forth. Wow. Oh. Sometimes they're not very nice, and sometimes the hermit crab will kind of eye, oh, that's the better shell. Let's <sighs> gang up on this other hermit crab and compete for, for that shell. Hmm. So that happens too. Man. But they have a little conga line. It's so cute. Or, or, or gross. I don't know. It, no, I think it so, sounds cute. Yeah. So where are they getting the shells? Are these like snail shells? Yeah. So the thing is that the land-based hermit crabs, their resources are a little bit more rare because they're not by the ocean. Mm. By the ocean, there's a bunch of like sea snail shells all around. Mm. So the land-based ones, 
it's rare for them to finally find a, a seashell or sometimes they use snail shell, but mostly, most of the time, that's why they have to swap. They're will mostly they, from will they die if they don't have a shell? I mean, they will die. They will die because of predators. They're more vulnerable it, from birds it. and coming up and, and mm. picking them up and they can't retract into their shell for safety. Right, <laughs> right. Um, well, especially if they look like a cinnamon bun. That sounds pretty tasty. I know. Yeah. 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 The conga line actually has a name. It's called Vacancy Chain. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> vacancy Chain. Wow. That's great. Not only do they just move into the new shell, they remodel their shells. The what? little hermit crabs do some redecorating inside their shell. Sometimes they break down the walls, make it roomier. <laughs> they would make it roomier so that they can grow larger or, or yeah. lay more eggs. They would slowly chip away kind of the edge of the opening so that it can fit as they grow. I'm That's... curious if they like jack any snails for the shell. Like they see a big snail and they're like, I want that. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Shell jacking. They do it to, they do it to each other. So why not a creature shell. without without any pinchy arms? Like... <laughs> so there are a lot of species of hermit crabs some of the hermit crabs don't even need a shell especially one particular species i'd like to talk about and it's called the coconut crab oh you might have heard of it i remember colin having a very negative uh, reaction (laughs) to a picture this is a nightmare creature you said you saw a picture of this you're like i I would crap my pants (laughs) i would cry my pants they actually don't have a shell because what happens is their abdomens actually start growing harder. Mm. So actually, they don't need a shell for protection. Also, they're huge. They're the <laughs> largest land-living arthropod in the world. How big are they? They're like bigger than your head. Yeah. I saw a photo of one covering a trash can lid. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Can you imagine taking out your trash and you're like, oh my I'm God. I'm not touching that. Yeah. <laughs> In sci-fi. If I came out in the morning and they were like on my car, I would just sell the car. I mean, you know what? <laughs> the crabs have it now. Even, yeah, if, yeah. even after it left, she could never get back in the car. <laughs> yeah. You know, in video games or science fiction, you, you read about head crabs, right? Attaching your face yeah. and attacking your face. It looks like that. It oh, totally man. looks oh. like that. It's huge. And, and they do develop a tough exoskeleton so they don't have to carry a shell anymore. And when they're smaller, they would. But they grow so big that they don't really, they don't really have any predators anymore. <laughs> yeah, they're just kind of just walking scary. down the street. They're like, what? Um, but you talk about the trash can, Colin. They have amazing sense of smell, these crabs. And they eat almost like, they eat a lot of things. They eat, you know, fruit. They actually do eat coconuts. Okay. So that's why they're called coconut crabs. They smell trash and they feed on carrion oh. stuff sometimes. Oh. And so they would hang out in trash cans. They're like tropical raccoons. They are. <laughs> uh, no thanks. Yeah. No thanks. Oh, oh, man. Colin, we didn't tell you, but we have a coconut crab here today. He's backstage. He's been listening to the show. Let's He's been bring in him the out. green room this whole time. <laughs> so they do eat coconuts. They're so smart. They know how to basically prepare a coconut. Like a a coconut falls on the ground. They know how to strip away the husk with their claws. Uh And then they would (laughs) climb the coconut tree with coconut in its claw, (laughs) drop the coconut so it would break. Mm. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. And that's just adaptive behavior. They just know. They just totally know. I just wait till they did that and I run and steal the coconut. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for opening it, suckers. That's the hardest part. (laughs) Suckers. Sweet, sweet coconut. Yeah, you come out the next morning and there's 40 (laughs) coconut crabs in your driveway. (laughs) Uh, We hear you got something of ours. (laughs) (laughs) Dead, dead silence, only the clicking of 
40 balls. <laughs> 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 so scary. One more last scary tidbit. The International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, known as TIGHAR. <laughs> a great acronym. <laughs> this group has approximated the whereabouts of where Amelia Earhart could have crashed and mm-hmm. landed or, or ended up. They said that she probably most likely died on an inhabited tropical island in, in the Kiribati area. Some users wrote us and said that Kiribati is supposed to be pronounced Kiribati. Right. I, I think I after we talked about it on the show, someone said Kiribati or Kiribati. Or, yeah. Or, so mm-hmm. I double checked. Uh, you can say it both on Kiribati slash Kiribati. Oh, okay. And Anyways, okay. they're guessing that Amelia Earhart probably ended up there. Huh. And um, one of the theories why they can't find her full remains is because coconut crabs probably no. ate her uh, bones I was, and yeah. her flesh. I mean, I was so I was so like, much better off not knowing that. Uh, Tropical raccoons, man. Tropical they, they get in there. Nightmare fuel for everybody. Wow, wow thanks. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Coconut crabs. <laughs> Remember that. Do we have anything good to say before we leave? Oh, yeah, something feels- on a positive yeah. note. Mm. Nah, I just You're just trying to look for a wrap right. up. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I was like, hey, coconut crabs probably ate her body. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> it was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> we bid you a safe journey if you're driving with me to this car. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening to this on a flight across the Atlantic, don't worry. Sure, you'll be fine. Now you know about coconut crabs. Right. You know if you, yeah, if you crash land on a deserted island and you yeah. see coconut crabs, just walk away. <laughs> thank you guys for joining me. And thank you guys, listeners, for listening in. Hope you learn a lot of stuff about solo artists. Stay away from coconut crabs. Appreciate that old Atari game pitfall. You can find our podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on SoundCloud. And also on our website, goodjobbrain.com. Join us on Twitter and Facebook. We're having lots of fun there and lots of fan mail. And you can also email us at gjb.podcast at gmail.com. And uh, I guess we'll see you guys all next week. Bye. 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 Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.